Hi everybody, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario. Before we get going, I just want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land 3CR broadcasts from. So on today's show, you'll be hearing from Simon Cattell. Simon is a mental health advocate um, and has worked in community development, advocacy, regulation and law reform. Um, Simon's work is grounded in his lived experience of mental health issues, as well as his studies in law, politics, psychology and regulation. Um, during this conversation, we will be speaking a lot about mental health. If anybody is needing any support, you can call Lifeline um, on 131114. I began by asking Simon um, to talk about himself and his work. My, I guess, connection to this work is um, I've got my own lived experience in mental health issues. Um, and I call them mental health issues. Other people call it distress or um, trauma, or um, sometimes people call it mental illness. Um, but I've got my own lived experience kind of coming from early trauma that I had in my life. Um, but then also, um, I guess what I call a breakdown. So I, I worked overseas in East Timor for a while and had some really difficult experiences when I was there as a, as a young 22-year-old. And um, that's sort of how I would describe it. It was I had a pretty significant breakdown. And um, I really struggled just staying on this earth for a couple of years. And so I didn't have probably a real connection to mental health um, before that, but um, that sort of connected me to, to mental health and why it matters. And I was already studying um, law and politics um, at the time. And I, I finished I finished that degree or those degrees and I moved down to Melbourne to, um, to study psychology um, like a lot of us work in mental health um, you know we uh, pursue our own recovery and journey um, through our studies and uh, so I did that um, but I found myself working in mental health advocacy so I worked for what we call the peak body down here in in, in uh, Victoria the v Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council uh, so I worked for them and a few other agencies advocating for people when they were experiencing involuntary mental health treatment so if you get you get taken into a mental health hospital you're probably under some kind of mental health act um, people would call the service that I used to work at so Vimiac or I worked at Legal Aid or this other mental health advocacy organization for a while and I'd come in and I'd be your advocate I'd be in your corner um, because often when you don't um, when you're in those settings you, you don't really have a say about what happens to you even though the law says you should and so um I sort of those weren't my lived experiences of having my rights taken away from me um, um, but my own lived experience of mental health is what sort of led me into that space and so now I do a lot of uh, work for, for different parts of government around mental health law, around how to set up the system so it better accounts for human rights and about how some of our like oversight agencies, the ones that are meant to enforce the law and protect people often don't do what they're meant to do and as consumers, which is the term we use in mental health, which is, um, I'm sure, a bit problematic, uh, they're the ones who often suffer. So, you know, when, you, when you're going into these spaces and being, you know, being an advocate for somebody, um, can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and, and what does that look like and is it kind of well-received by kind of the system? And Yeah, it's so interesting. I reckon with the exception of my my, my breakdown job at Timor, the advocate job was was definitely the hardest I've had. Um, but also the most uh, informative and, and the biggest privilege I've had too. So I don't know, let's say like you, you know, you're, you're put into a unit and you're in there, you'd probably be looking around the unit 
you don't often know why you're there. You um, are getting this medication that you don't, no one really told you a lot about. Um, and you might have been taken in there by force and you're still dealing with the, the trauma associated with that, which could have just been hours earlier. Um, you might look around the unit and you'd, you'd see a poster about an advocate and your rights and you'd call that. They would um, uh, sort of allocate me to you. Then I would probably talk to you on the phone and you know, you just I'd be probably giving you information for the first time about your rights. You probably, although you're legally required to, you um, uh, you should have been told about your your rights while you're in there, but what we know is you usually aren't. Um, and you know, I'd be saying, well, you know, even though you're under the Mental Health Act, you have rights to be involved in those decisions about your treatment. In, and in actual fact, you should be making quite a few of them. Um, now that'll come as news to a lot of people when they're in there. Um, uh, and so then they'd, uh, you know, uh, my job would be to be what I need to be for them. So we, we often call it like representational advocacy. So I don't as an advocate, I wouldn't decide what you needed. Um, you might want this medication, that medication, no medication, whatever, whatever. My job was to um, support you to exercise your rights in that situation because, no, because frankly speaking, no one else in the system is. So I'd be ratcheted right into your corner. But no doubt it was difficult. It was difficult. It'd be me and you, um, probably six or seven other clinicians in a room. Um, and, you know, those are the clinicians that would make a decision about whether you're going to be secluded or not, whether you're going to get that forced treatment or not, um, you know, and and um, you, you might raise what your rights are, but, you know, in actual fact, a lot of the time, those would just get overridden, even though they're not allowed to be. So um, the system has a lot of um, reflecting to do, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, we've made some progress, but we've got a lot, a lot more to go. And so, um, uh, some people understand the role of an advocate and the importance of human rights. But yeah, frankly speaking, I think the mental health system um, really is yet to 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 fully listen um, to to consumers when they talk about that stuff, and fully reckon with the impacts of some of the things it's it's currently doing. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm just thinking as you're talking about my experience as a professional, kind of entering those spaces, and just I guess even the level of power dynamics that are you know in those spaces and often they're not even acknowledged or talked about, which, you know, um, that's why I think that kind of advocate role can be really important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and we, we um, you know, advocates have power in that, in that situation too. And so I was always really upfront about what my role is and my duties to, to you if, if I'm serving you as your advocate. I'm your servant. That's how I conceive of myself. Um, and what your accountability mechanisms are in relation to me as well, both in terms of interpersonal, so we can create a fair relationship, but more in terms of, well, like, this is where you go if you're concerned about the way I've handled things. And I tried to do that to model what the rest of the system um, should do. And I, I definitely got complaints and there were opportunities for me to improve and my advocacy got better and I became a better person through that. Um, and yeah, so I think what, in any of these professional roles we're in, um, we do often carry a lot of power and part of it's about how do you be conscious of it, but also part of it's how do you give it up. Mm. I also wonder whether the complaints meant you were doing your job. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. You've also um, done a lot of work with the Royal Mental Health Royal Commission and that's something we haven't really talked about much on this show. Um, so can you maybe just give us a bit of an outline around where the Royal Commission is up to and Maybe a big question, but also what you're hope what you're hoping to that comes out of this. 
Yeah, so so a lot of you, so we're here in um in Victoria and in, in, in um um and and a lot of you in Victoria would know that um that uh, we had a royal commission into Victoria's mental health system. So it it was announced in uh, at the end of 2018, started 2019, and then they handed down a report in March last year, and that report um uh, outlined 74 recommendations. There was an interim report, so nine interim report recommendations, 65 final report recommendations on, um, I guess, what they call a broken system, you know, um, a, a system that, that wasn't serving the needs of the people um, that, that it was meant to. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, we're at the price, we're probably, what, a year and a half out from that, 18 months out from that, um, and, and um, we're in the process of implementation. I suppose, what, how, what are my hopes for it? I, I suppose... It's I'm, I'm a glass half empty, glass half full, um, and it depends on which day you talk to me. It, on the half empty side, I think it's really important that we have to name the original sin in the Royal Commission, which was that um, there was a carer commissioner, there was a psychiatrist, um, there was a legal commissioner, and there was a public administration official. Um, there was no consumer commissioner. And uh, how you could have a Royal Commission into the mental health system and exclude from the commissioners uh, the people who use the system um, is uh, woeful and and it's something that we shouldn't ever forget um, and there were opportunities to change that and it wasn't changed and so we need to name that uh, and connected to that the terms of reference were very i guess future and policy focused um, and so um, part of that is uh, that it wasn't like the disability royal commission that we've got going on at the moment which is um, i'm sure you know it has its imperfections too um, but or the aged care royal commission or uh, you know, we had the child sexual abuse rural commissions. Those really investigated the harms in the system and really looked into what's occurring, what are the power relations that are that have given rise to these kinds of issues. That wasn't really the, you know, that wasn't on the cards for this kind of rural commission. And so we've probably got 74 recommendations, which are uh, what I would describe as the what, you know, um, something, the what, what do we need to do? Uh, probably some more things I think we should do, but we've got the what, but we don't really have the why. So we don't really know why we're in this situation because we didn't look back. You know, to know where you're going, you have to know where you've come from. And the fact that a consumer was not part of that process meant that we didn't examine that and the terms of reference. Now, with you know, I did say it's half empty, so there is actually some um, some milk in the glass. So I think there are um, there are positive things to keep in mind too. So. Um, you know, one of the things that the, the government's doing is, is creating a range of new institutions that will hopefully create a change. Um, you know, one is the new Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. So that's going to be a new regulator that oversees the mental health system and holds government and services to account um, for, you know, whether they're, do, whether they're creating this new mental health system. And I think that's really important because the current agencies, as I alluded to earlier, they're not really doing a great job. Um, uh, the other things that the government's doing, they're making really conscious efforts to implement human rights um, across lots of different parts of the system. So I'm fortunate to work uh, on a range of initiatives with the with the government um, in my consultancy capacity. So I should be clear with all of this, I'm speaking from my personal capacity, um, that uh, they're, they're implementing you know, a range of initiatives to build in um, our Victorian Charter of Human Rights into the daily work that they're doing. And I think that's really important. Um, and I suppose the other thing that's really it, we do need to acknowledge is that um, there's a levy now which is going to fund the system appropriately. So for I will talk a lot about the power relations in the system and um, that we 
haven't examined that sufficiently, but we also haven't funded it uh, enough either. And so um, the levy is, you know, you got to tip your hat to, to government. Nobody likes a levy, um, and but they went, went, they sort of implemented what the Royal Commission said on that. And so at least means we've got enough money in the wallet to, to do the things. It's who gets the money and how we implement it. That's going to be the challenge. I also worry by the time they fund it, it will already be underfunded. Even <laughs> 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 kind of the current kind of state of mental health services and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and just how under stress the medical, all health services are at the moment, you know. Yeah, and you get this, you you sort of get this um, real sense of siege um, mentality that services are in at the moment because they, um, demand has um, increased on the system in the last couple of years during COVID. The whole bunch of extra pressures that services are now facing. Um, and we are talking about mental health more and that's good, but there's a, a flow on consequence of that is which that we naturally demand more service when we talk about mental health more and yeah. Yeah, hard yakka and you, you would know better than me trying to provide that care. Mm, it is. It's, it's once you name it and normalise it and, and provide a space that it's okay for people to talk about it, then, you know, it does have a flow on effect on, on services and systems and things like that. So I hope that it's kind of accounted for in some ways as well. Um, yeah. And you alluded to earlier just around how different policies and things like that can actually impact around people's mental health. So can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, like sort of how broader government policy can impact mm. them. Yeah, I mean... I think that that's something that's often lost in our national conversations about um, about mental health policy. Um, we often treat, you know, think that if we are going to address mental health, we need to do mental health policy and fund mental health services. But um, there there are social and economic um, and frankly catalyst kind of determinants of um, so much of the distress um, um, that we experience. And we've got to, you know, I think, you know, the we've got a taste of that in the last couple of years, for better and for worse, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that and, and try to have a nuanced conversation about that. But, you know, we don't really think about how um, roads, education, housing, gender equality, um, racism, you know, the religious discrimination bill, how these things um, impact on um, mental health. And part of that's because we've depoliticised mental health as just being this individualised, you know, issue that we each have, um, you know, you fit this diagnostic label or that diagnostic label. And if you, when you, when you look at the box, you just, you know, uh, you, you lose everything outside of it. And, and so, um, you know, we, I, I would just reflect even something that I've often reflected on is last year we had youth mental health organizations um, doing, um, you know, a press conference after press conference with um, conservative governments um, talking about, um, you know, oh, we funded this, you know, new mental health service or that, you know, headspace or whatever it is. Um, when that that government was demonising young trans folk, they were demonising women, um, they were treating people with disability poorly, you know, and um, it, it's, you know, we, we need to broaden our focus that uh, on mental health policy to include the determinants. And that's really incumbent upon those large mental health organisations as well to be a little bit more sophisticated and rigorous um, uh, about that. And because otherwise those services are just being funded to um, put bandages on people who are being harmed upstream by government policy, you know, 
Um, and so there's a kind of real um, failure of industry to hold government to account for the policies um, that they ultimately come in to fix. Yeah. yeah, and and a lot of that also in my experience is around competitive tendering where everyone's competing for the same money and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So we talk about mental health, I think, a lot in terms of just individual. This is the individual and a lot of the services and the funding are also mm. very much about the individual. And I'm wondering, my question is, are we missing that broader collective mental health, you know, um, conversation, but not just conversation, but also services, you know, a lot of the funding goes to the same big organizations and all of that kind of thing. Um, it's turning into a bit of a franchise model in some ways, some some of it. Um, yeah. How do we be a little bit more sophisticated? And, and... I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, and we sort of, we have taught ourselves just to, to lean into the problem a bit more though. Like we've, We've like de-skilled ourselves in these conversations. Like you spoke about some of the local community initiatives, where communities themselves are the place that um, that understand that they actually they know a lot about how to support people in distress, mm -hmm. um, and they've got a lot of cultural um, culturally relevant skills. You know, um, first peoples know um, have sixty thousand years of wisdom in approaching social emotional well being. Um, you know, and you can't. Um, you can't be equipped with that skill set through a cultural safety training. Like there are just some things that um, some people are better situated to do. And we sort of know that a little bit in, um, you know, um, mental health policy as it relates to first peoples, but we, we don't really acknowledge that in many other contexts. And I don't want to say that we do it well, because I'm, I'm sure there would be uh, many Aboriginal um, Victorians who would, would highlight it hasn't been, that hasn't been done well. But um, how do we think about it in a more sophisticated fashion? I think we just need to repoliticize mental health, you know, and that sounds like a really unintuitive thing to do. Um, it sounds like it's a combative thing to do, and it is, and that's an intentional decision for me. Um, we need to acknowledge that there is a hidden and latent politics underlying our mental health policy and, and funding structures, kind of spoke about the competitive tendering there. Um, that all serves a, a range of neoliberal kind of um, agendas and um, until we grapple with that in a really meaningful way, um, we're going to be putting band-aids on things, you know. I was just in a um, conversation yesterday where someone said, you know, we just, uh, you know, somebody who, who um, you know, wanted very well for, for people in the mental health system and said, we just need to fund uh, more psychiatrists so there's, you know, more, um, so people can get more diagnoses to get the care they need. And I guess my question would be, I mean, why do we need to start there? Why, like, why aren't we talking about peer workers? Why aren't we talking about spiritual workers in communities? Why does our system rely on diagnosis? Um, why is the system not geared to, well, what's the problem that you've got before you today? And how can we build that? How can we build a relationship with you interpersonally? But then how can we build services and systems that will respond to that rather than make you fit a diagnostic label? Um, and uh, make you fit that rather than the other way around. So all of that is, um, you know, all of those, it's a bit of a hot mess, my answer, but um, part of that's because I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think we need to re-politicise mental health. And it's a good it's a good opportunity to to sit in that hot mess and actually figure it out, you know. <laughs> um, exactly. And exactly. for me, like, how do we make these services accessible for people, you know? We don't often talk about class, but, like, it's really expensive to access mental health services. You know, go to your GP and get a mental health plan. That's expensive for people. 
And the alternative to that is like really long waiting lists or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think the um, part of the reason why this stuff is all expensive and inaccessible is that our system is, you know, the, the funding decisions are made on the basis of lobbying, not on the basis of consumers. You know, we don't have a national peak, a uh, national consumer peak um, that would be doing the, the hardcore advocacy about um, well, what do we need to set up um, so that we can get access to the things that we want when we want them in an equ equitable way. Instead, you, you get these constant warring tensions between the GPs and the psychiatrists and the psychologists and each one of them sort of um, hashing it out. You know, you know who loses? It's always the people who use the system that lose. Um, and you know who always gets left out in these conversations are the peer workers, you know, the people who don't have a professional body. Um, and so you, you can see a concentration of funding to a concentration of, of lobbying and, and good, good um, I guess, strategic advocacy. But mm. it's not necessarily good policy. You know? yeah. and, and there has been an increase in like peer workers and people with lived experience coming into kind of services as a system and things. But they also need to be given power and and a, and a voice in that as well, not just just to have them there, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's not you know um, sort of uh, I, some of the work that I do. So I've I've I kind of trained as a peer worker, but you know, frankly speaking, I think I'd be a pretty shit ass uh, peer worker. So I never ended up doing it. But um, uh, I, I do um, work with a, a lot of comrades who are peer workers and. Um, you know, their experiences of discrimination, bullying, stigma, um, particularly at those pointy ends of, ends of the system where hierarchies within those organisations get a lot stricter. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the work conditions are horrible. Often the, the skills and expertise that, that peer workers have, um, not just drawing on their lived experience, but drawing on the wisdom of other peer workers and a whole what we call consumer movement um, around them, um, uh, that, you know, is, is grounded in decades old um, uh, wisdom about creating alternatives to the system, reciprocity, different kinds of relationships, not assessing people, um, connecting with them, which I'm sure a lot of professionals do, but they probably do that in spite of their professional training, not because of it. Um, that's built into the sort of sort of core fabric of, of peer work. Um, but that, um, I mean, that is just oil and water in the current systems. And like, honestly, it's like people get set on fire when they go into these systems and try to practice that way. Mm -hmm. I've supported lots of people who are just um, burnt out, like lots of people in the mental health system are burnt out, but they're burnt out for, for additional reasons of discrimination and stigma. Yes, that's an important point, I think, for me as well, because often we you hear burnout and it's, that's often individualized as well. Like what, what's wrong mm. that they can't cope and it must be the clients that they're seeing or it must be the people that these stories that they're hearing. It's never, it's actually, in my experience, it's never that. It's actually the system that's not supporting the people that um, are accessing our services, but also the ones that are trying to deliver it on the ground as well. Do you know, it's yeah. those systemic factors that really make it hard for people to be sustained in it, I guess. I just remember, so I used to, like I said, I used to go into all of the different units in, in Victoria, and I remember going into, into this inpatient unit um, uh, four or five years ago, and I, I knew the peer workers pretty well. And uh, anyway, I was sitting around the um, table with a couple of the uh, peer workers, and um, I think someone someone in the mental health service said, oh, don't you, to, to, to us, because we all had lived, declared lived experience, um, they said, oh, don't you find it challenging uh, you know, hearing all these stories from you know from folks in the system 
like, is that the part that you find challenging? And for all of us, we were like, no, it's talking to the psychiatrists. Like, we find that genuinely intimidating, uh, like, in our body, the sense of unsafety. And I've been assaulted in inpatient units, you know. Um, but the thing that would still sit with me um, was uh, the the, the kind of the fear of the, the the power in the system, you know. And I'm not – I wasn't the one being detained, but I'd often have to be the one to um, uh, have the really – well, in addition to the person I was working for, had the really difficult conversations. And we just haven't done that as an, at an institutional level within the mental health system. In the lead up to when I chatted to you before we, we had this interview, we were kind of talking about men, how mental health was kind of brought up as um, during the pandemic and, you know, as a reason for restrictions easing and all that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it was presented as this kind of either or, you know, right? Mm. Need to we need to look after people's mental health, so we need to do this. Um, so, how did you kind of see that conversation? Because it was it was I was infuriated often, kind of hearing this, and just the way mental health gets used as a reason, or almost weaponized even sometimes as a reason to do certain things um, that actually is putting a whole another bunch of the community at risk. You know, why can't we hold both positions? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and again, I think that highlights to me that. The conversations can only flow in that way, um, in that really unhelpful direction. So, you know, yeah, like but like I just circle back on what you were saying. So, like, you know, oh, we're going to ease restrictions because we're ultimately just really concerned about people's mental health and, um, you know, these restrictions are, are impacting on people. Now, of course they were, 100%. I'm not um, denying that. Um, I found it challenge, deeply challenging, and I know a lot of other people do. Totally. Yeah. Um, but... Um, it didn't really acknowledge that, oh, I wonder if you're a person with a disability or someone who's immunocompromised, what uh, this policy means for their mental health. What does this policy mean or these restrictions mean for age, people in aged care settings? Um, and to me, uh, it's uh, like the people most marginalised whose mental health matter at least um, in, um, in that discussion about mental health. Um, and and so again, it just highlights the necessity of politicizing our discussion. Like when I say politicizing, I don't mean in a polarizing sense. I mean having a political consciousness about the human rights implications, about the power relations, about the history of you know white Australia, um, bringing those things into our discussion about um, mental health policy. Um, and, and if we do that, it makes us confront um, the the mental health. Um, of uh, folks who um, are, can now no longer um, take part in public life on an equal basis um, with myself. So I, I don't really have any immunocompromised, uh, I'm already speaking beyond my capacity, I don't even know how to say it properly, but um, I don't have any health issues that, that, that make it any more unsafe for me than for other people. Um, but I get to go into more parts of the world now and more parts of um, Victoria. And I mean that in a literal and figurative sense um, because um, uh, the easing of restrictions um, isn't going to impact me. But if for lots of my friends, um, their world just got smaller yeah. and scarier. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I had a lung transplant at the beginning of COVID right, when it started and I'm immunocompromised as well. So, um, And it's, it's mixed feelings, you know, when those restrictions ease because in one way you want to you want that and, and it's you know you want to kind of access parts of the world and you want to kind of live kind of parts of your life but at the same time level of anxiety also increased at that time as well you know and I think that's the part that just you know doesn't get under 
understood, I guess, and not talked about or considered or or even like shut down in some ways. Well, just don't go outside then. Well, that's then you're just marginalizing folks even more. I can to ask you, like from the outside, I would just feel like I'm not being seen as a human um, in those conversations. But yeah. I don't know what your experience is about. That's my look from the outside. Um, I the way I, th- I I I saw it like that, and I think a lot of other folks see it like that as well. Um, not to speak for people, but I think um, I'm probably right in that. A lot of chronically ill folks and disabled folks, but um, it's it it was. You heard, a, you heard a lot of talk around immunocompromised and all that kind of thing. Mm. But I, what lacked for me was emotion around that and actual yeah. voices around that. Like, what yeah. does it actually mean? And what does it actually mean on a day-to-day basis during a pandemic? Mm. That, I think, was missing. So people got used to the word immunocompromised and stuff, but they actually didn't know what that meant. You know? Interesting, because it sort of resembles... Uh, the same issues with the when we talk about mental health where we use categories and you no longer see the people behind the categories you just see schizophrenia or bipolar and it kind of erases that subjectivity or that humanity um within those the well not even within those labels but for the people who those labels are applied to in some ways immuno immunocompromised is now just a box um, that people are in but we don't really examine any deeper behind that yeah, you, you, it lacks the the human connection, which then means that you don't. It's hard for people to be empathetic or to understand it when you're not kind of when you when it is just a box or a word during a press conference or you know all that kind of stuff. <laughs> There's something in there about the conversations that we have um, uh, publicly, and we 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 don't often, um, although they speak up, they're often not heard. Um, folks with a disability in these conversations around these public policy decisions, um, we don't. Um, we don't hear from them enough in the sort of mainstream conversations. And um, I think that's one area where I think it's that's a politicisation of the process that would be good, like a political consciousness that would be good. Um, but just bringing a, uh, you know, a sort of sense of fairness to these um, and equality, um, you know, to sort of strip back when I talk about human rights, just bringing that lens to, to these decisions and these conversations um, is just so crucial. Um, and I think we can do that. I think we can do that. Is there anything that, you know, people that are listening to this or people in the community um, that you feel like they can do to to support advocacy or to kind of make themselves heard in in as we are having these conversations around mental health? Well, I would sort of um, uh, recommend two things. So if you identify as having lived experience of, of mental health issues, um, in most states and territories, I think this just comes out of Victoria, this, this, this podcast, but um, there, there is a peak body. Um, so here in Victoria, it's FIMIAC, the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. Um, uh, you know, sign up as a member, it's free. You, you get to hear from, I guess, if you think I'm your kind of bullshit person, um, you know, they've sort of loosely got the, the same vibes as me. Um, uh you, you'll hear more about the policy um, policies that they care about and what their members care about. Um, and, and the second would just be, you know, if you're um, not someone who identifies with lived experience or having used services, um, when you see public conversations about mental health and there's not someone with lived experience, ask why. And it should be someone with a declared lived experience who works from that perspective. Um, and, and I think that's... That's crucial that, of course, we all have um, 
experience, experiences distress at different times in our life, but there are certain roles like peer worker roles and specific lived experience roles that are built on that expertise and that, that wisdom that I spoke about. If you don't see that in a public discussion, then we've got a problem. Um, and, and we need folks um, who aren't part of that group to, to, raise, um, to raise the profile of that group. So that would be my two things. Sign up if you're, if you're part of the gang and support the gang if you're, uh, if you're not. That was mental health advocate Simon Cattell. If anyone is needing any assistance after hearing that conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114. You can also listen to this episode and all of our episodes on podcast via the 3CR website, um, iTunes, and also on Spotify. I'd like to thank Simon for coming onto the show and also thank you for listening.